Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. I don't know what your first sermon was like. Most of you have no idea what that experience is like. I know the occasion, I don't remember what I preached. In fact, I don't think anybody wanted to remember what I preached, but I had a youth pastor that uh, <clears throat> said, well, you know, I, I'm going to need some of you guys to come down and help me. Uh, I need you to come down with me to 29th and California. Anybody know where 29th and California is? What's there? The Cook County Jail. And he said, what I want you to do is, he goes, I want you to, to come and preach for some of the inmates that are there. Now, his joke was, it's a captive audience. And you're like, okay, I understand that. They can't get away. But he goes, I want you to preach. So I can remember going into that room, and uh, they had uh, one of the meeting rooms that they had that served as a dining room for them. And, and uh, I preached for about 15 minutes. I think I preached the whole of the Bible and whatever else to those 12 to 15 men that were there. And and uh, it was an experience for me. It was an experience for them, I'm sure. But uh, I don't remember the impact of it. I don't think anyone got saved or uh, that. But it was a good experience for me to start off in. And I uh, was thankful for that. And it set me on a course that I didn't think I was going to go on. Because in high school, I still was not convinced that I was supposed to be preaching. I had other ideas in mind. But... I then look at this first sermon of the church. This is the first sermon of Peter. And it was a, quite a, a sermon. We aren't going to get into all the details of it. It was one that took place 50 days after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it wasn't to an audience that was all that, in some cases, receptive to what Peter was going to say. Granted, there are people, as you look in, in verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 2, that were from all over the world. There was Jews that would come in for this festival of Pentecost. It was uh, a celebration of God bringing in uh, the harvest and God doing this. And so it was kind of like a Thanksgiving celebration that the nation, or the Jews, were called to celebrate. This is part of what they were supposed to be doing. And, and so you have people from all over the world, but included in this crowd that Peter was preaching to were people who were violently opposed to Jesus Christ. You go, how do you know that? Well, these are individuals that he even points out the fact that they were part of the group that were yelling, crucify him, and by their cruel hands delivered him over uh, to the Romans and allowed him to be killed. And so the audience that he's preaching to is not one where uh, people come and they're generally uh, going to be happy with the message or understand what's going on, besides the fact that a lot of the people don't understand what's going on. They come there and there for this festival, and in the midst of all of this, God pours out his Holy Spirit upon 120 individuals that are in an upper room, and they're there, and God pours out his Spirit upon them, and they start going into the streets, and they're proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ in languages of all the people that are here, even though they have no language background. They're backward Galileans. We might say in the Jewish culture, they were kind of the hillbillies of the day. They didn't get much education. These 
these individuals are out in the streets and they're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's nine o'clock in the morning. And this is confusing to people because most of them, if they're anything like you, they haven't really had their morning coffee yet. And they're coming into the streets and there's these people proclaiming all of this and they don't know what's going on. And some are saying, these are people that are proclaiming things we've never heard of. And others are saying they're drunk. And for the apostle Peter, as he gets up to preach, uh, he has to deal with this issue and say, they're not drunk, they're not doing anything. In fact, what they're doing is what God had promised, that God would pour out his spirit. And so he quotes passages like Joel chapter 2 and other passages that pointed to the fact that God would pour out his spirit upon his people in the latter days. And the days uh, before he came back, that he would pour out his spirit and that these things that were going on, that they were proclaiming the name of uh, Jesus Christ in languages that they never understood was something that God had predicted. And that kind of served as Peter's introduction to these people that, okay, let's clear this up. This is something that God did, something that God had happened, but there's something more important for you to understand. And it's not just a thing that you need to understand, it's a person. When you talk about the gospel, we we talked a little bit about this on Wednesday. When you talk about the gospel, what you're talking about is good news. Okay, that's what that word literally means. And if you were to get that term said to you, the, you know, what we would call the evangel or the evangelism is sometimes the word we use for this. If you had this spoken to you in the Greek, the euangelium, you would say, oh, good news. Okay, I understand what you're talking about. You know, for us, gospel can kind of have all sorts of things. But if you just look at that term gospel, good news, what you find in the New Testament that good news is not a plan or something, it's a person. You'll oftentimes see this in the New Testament as you read through it. It'll talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what you could say is this, the gospel the good news, that is Jesus Christ, okay? It's a person. And so what Peter does is that in his first message, he's trying to figure out what he's going to preach, and it's kind of a spur-of-the-moment message. This is not one that he had an outline for that he's saying, okay, let me get prepared for this or whatever else. This is one where he's suddenly preaching, and he's going, what am I going to preach? What kind of message that will be simple for them, but they need desperately, and it's just simply this, lift up Christ. Hold him up for people to see. Now, for us, if we were stuck in a pressure situation like that, you'd go, well, what would you preach? Well, as you go through the message that we were able to read earlier, you find out there's a lot of Old Testament passages. He's got all sorts of sermon material from the 39 books of the Old Testament. He covers uh, multiple books of the Old Testament and uses this as kind of his text as he preaches Christ. And what he does then is just preach Christ from the Old Testament, but then just talks about what these things mean. And what you find in this message that Peter, or Peter gives is that he just lays out the life of Christ and just simply says, here is the good news. Let me lay out what the good news, that is Jesus Christ, did. And it would surprise you what he spends a majority of his time on. See, most of the time when we talk about salvation and we talk about the good news, we talk about the cross. We spend a lot of time on that. 
But what you're going to find is that he only spends one verse on that. He only spends one verse on his life. You go, what's the majority of his sermon about? The majority of his sermon is about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's what the emphasis is. You read through the rest of the book of Acts, and we're not going to go through all of that uh, this morning, but you read some of the other sermons that uh, Paul preaches and others preach, and you'll find that the emphasis is that Jesus rose from the dead. Not that people didn't need their sins paid for. Without the shedding of blood, we're told in the scriptures, there's no forgiveness of sins, but they emphasize the resurrection. That there is a great hope, that there's something to look forward to because of Jesus' death on the cross, but not just his death, but what he did by rising from the dead. And so let's just kind of work through this sermon, how Peter introduces people to Jesus Christ and what his emphasis is. As you go through, you find in verse number 22 that he talks about the incarnation and three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Verse 22, it says this, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. So he gives the location for most people. They'd go, Nazareth? I can't even find that on a map. Where's that at? No idea where this is at. So not a significant uh, person from a significant region of the world in their mind. But everybody knew who Jesus of Nazareth was by this point. They'd heard of this Jesus because there were many Jesuses in Israel at this time. But Jesus of Nazareth, this is a unique one. Jesus of Nazareth, this one, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. I mean, Peter doesn't spend much time on this, but he goes, you people observed him. Many of you went out and took trips. They took vacations to go see Jesus. Here are occasions where people are leaving the regions they live in, and they're going to see where Jesus is at, and they're there to do, well, to see the miracles that he does and to hear his preaching. You have accounts around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus would go from one place to another, and people would run around the Sea of Galilee to follow him around. And so Jesus was known, and people were seeing these miracles that he would did. Now, did. now most of these people were just saying, well, what fantastic thing is he going to do? And that's not why Jesus was doing miracles. It wasn't that he was merely trying to show off, though he was displaying the glory of God and doing these things. I mean, you see the word in verse 22, signs. Okay, that's what, how John, when he goes through his Gospels, talks about the seven miracles he records. He calls them signs. And you go, what do signs do? Signs point to something. It's not the sign that's important. Okay, you don't go down the road and go, oh, look, there's an exit sign. Wow, I love that exit sign. You know, look at that exit sign. It's fantastic. No, uh, you're usually going, oh, the exit. Okay, that's important. Let's get off the road here because the exit, where we're going is important. So it was with Jesus' miracles. It wasn't that he was doing miracles to just kind of do miracles. No, it was pointing to something. That he was not just merely some man or some person or some nice historical figure. No, these miracles are pointing to all sorts of different things. That Jesus is the creator. This is why you have stories like changing water into wine. Or he's got a person who has no, uh, the arm is not working properly and suddenly it's able to stretch forth. Or someone who doesn't have uh, eyesight because they probably don't have eyes and suddenly they can see. And you go, well, who can do that? A creator. 
Well, who can calm an ocean in an instant? You read those stories, it's not that you have the storm and it suddenly calms down. Most of the time, as you read the accounts, it's that the wind stops and the waves stop. It's a calm sea. You go, who can do that? Only God can because the winds and the waves obey him. And so as Jesus goes through his ministry, these people saw miracles like this. They heard his teaching, and what he says is this. This was a man, yes, he was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, but his miracles pointed to the fact that he was someone far beyond just a man. He was God. So in one verse, we really have almost the complete details of all we have in the Gospels and the majority of the Gospels of what Jesus did. He was born, he did miracles, he ministered, he said things, and Peter gives that in one verse. So you have his life and ministry. Then you see verse 23, and Peter gives this account. I mean, this is the ultimate point of all the Gospels. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have slain. Crucified and slain. So you see this statement where you read all the Gospels, all four of them work up to where the majority section at the end, this major section of material, is talking about all the things that go on. The trials, both with the Jews, where you have three different trials that take place, and then with the Romans, three different trials that take place there as far as who Jesus is. And it's not just the accidental workings of some mob. Peter acknowledges this. God already knew all of this was going to happen and allowed these things to occur. It wasn't an accident that Jesus ended up on the cross. Okay? This is something that before the foundation of the world, God planned for. Even before he shaped and created human beings, knowing that they would go and wander away from him and that he would have to send his son into this world, God already planned for the cross. And so when these people think they're doing some random acts that they're going to accomplish their purposes and getting rid of this Jesus they really don't like because he said things about them and is doing things differently than they ever expected, they thought that they were doing this on their own and their own initiative. And what Peter says is this, no, God planned for this. This is part of God's plan, that Jesus would die on the cross. It wasn't an accident. It was a necessity. As we already mentioned, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We would never have our sins forgiven if one did not go in our place who was sinless, which Jesus Christ was, who was sinless, who was also a human being, so he could be our substitute, our replacement, and take God's punishment that we deserve and take that on the cross. And so Peter deals with this, that this crucifixion wasn't an accident. No, God planned for it. And it was necessary for this to happen, that Jesus died for sins. But then you see in verse 24 to 32 that Peter concentrates on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You look at verse 24, uh, this is... You know, Christ rising from the dead once again was not an accident. It was planned by God. Verse 24, Jesus, uh, you put this at the beginning, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Jesus rose from the dead because it wasn't possible for him to lay and remain in that grave. 
And there were multiple reasons for it. The line of reasoning that Peter uses is this, is because he just simply says this, it was prophesied he would rise from the dead. And if God said he was going to rise from the dead and prophesied this, it was something that had to happen. Now for us, you would say a prophet. Who would you choose to be a prophet? You go, well, Isaiah, Jeremiah, one of those individuals is a prophet. But Peter uses someone who wasn't necessarily thought of as a prophet, but in his writings he was. A man by the name of David. David, who was one of probably three people in Israel's culture and background that was most important. You would have Abraham, you'd have Moses, and you'd have David. If they were to talk about their founding fathers and the most important people in their culture. I mean, we've got those type of people in the United States culture uh, that we'd go, these are important individuals. Well, Peter says this, David, who was your king at one time, prophesied that Jesus wouldn't be held by the ground, wouldn't be held by the grave, wouldn't be held by death. And he says in verse 25, for David speaketh uh, concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face and he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Now you say, what is he quoting? You have a center column reference in the Bible it gives you some extra notes there. Uh, you'll note that he's quoting Psalm chapter 16. Here's what Psalm 16 says. I'll just read uh, what our context is from the, he, the, the Old Testament. It just simply says this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest. The idea is resting there. We talk about people who die. They are what? Sleeping. That's how we describe death. I shall rest in hope. I'm going to die, but there is going to be this confidence. And then it's this, verse 10, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. And so what God prophesied using David uh, was this, is that there was going to be one who had this kind of a thing that they were going to be laid in the grave, but they were going to be laid in the grave in the confidence that their body would not corrupt and that they would not be left in the grave, but they would rise from the dead. Now, Peter has to explain this passage. He does quote Psalm 16, and there may have been some in the crowd that knew this passage. But verse 29, he says this, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch, or we might say founding father David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. So what he's pointing out is this, David couldn't be talking about himself because he's been laying in a grave for a thousand years. Okay, this passage wasn't specifically talking about him. He's dead and gone. Verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. See, David, during his lifetime, you remember the story, he was going to build a temple for God, and God said, nope, I'm not going to let you build a house for me but I'm going to build a house for you. 
You know what I mean by a house? I'm going to build a family for you that's going to continue on forever. In fact, in, in different occasions, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, when he told him he can't build a house, but I'm going to do something for you by building you a family, he said this about David, and when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep, you'll be dead with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thee, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom temporarily. No, it says forever. There's going to be someone in David's line that has the ability to rule forever, that death has no hold on him. And even in some of the Psalms, Psalm 132, uh, you have uh, the psalmist there writing this, the Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it of the fruit of thy body, I will set upon thy throne. There's going to be one who rules forever. So David, even though he's going, okay, I'm going to die. There's one coming after me that death's going to have no hold on them. Death is not going to be able to keep them. It's going to be somebody from my line. And so you do a quick trace of, well, who's in David's line? You've got the Gospels both in Matthew and in Luke. You can trace it out and look at the genealogy that David had a grandson by the name of Jesus. That this Jesus who was a man, yet God was in the line of David, was one who would not be held by death. And what happened after that, you go, well, it's what you would expect of someone who's in royalty and who's a king, that they're going to rule and reign. And so he moves from the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Death has no hold on him. No control on him. So if you got somebody like that, what do you expect him to do? Look at verse number 33. Therefore, being at the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. I mean, Christ is in heaven, and what he's doing is he's handing out gifts as a king. Well, what has he done? He's given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why these people are able to do what they're doing in the streets here, to preach the good news to you. They've received this gift of the Holy Spirit. It was promised by the Father. Christ said, I will not leave you as orphans. Or is our, our text sometimes says comfortless. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit, who is like me. We say, why is that? Because the Holy Spirit's God also. And he's going to dwell with you and remind you and bring all things to remember whatsoever I taught you. Here you've got this king who's now in heaven sitting at the right hand of God the Father who's dispensing gifts. He shed this forth of what you now see and hear. And David prophesied this. Look at verse 34. David is not ascended into the heavens. David's not ruling from heaven. When he died, his reign ended. But he himself has said this, and the quote is in verse 34, is from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord hath said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes or the enemies thy footstool. Uh, this is a quote. And you look at this, David's the one that writes this, and he says, the Lord hath said unto my Lord. So you're now talking about two people higher than David. He says, these two people are having a conversation. You have a conversation going on between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Father just says, here, you sit here and rule at my right hand uh, until all your enemies are, right, are, are your footstool. And so you go, what is Jesus doing right now? Is he doing nothing? You know, for the last 2,000 years, he's just kind of going, nothing to do. 
No, he's been interceding for us. He's the go-between. He's doing that kind of work. And what he's doing is he's dispensing good gifts. And by him, all things consist. They continue on. This world continues on by the working of Jesus Christ. And one day he will come to rule and reign. He will put down all those that oppose him. He will bring the nations to subjection that have gone against him. And as you read the book of Revelation, you go, what's the message of Revelation? It can be so confusing sometimes as you read through it and you're like, what is this and that and all these things? But you get through and you read it and you get to the end and you just simply says the, think this, that Jesus ultimately wins. Everything will be subject to him. All people, all nations, all of creation will be subject to this individual and will obey him. And he will either be their judge or their savior. See, this verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. We'll get into all the details of what that name means exactly this morning, but it's just simply this. Those people that are in the crowd recognize the fact after hearing this message that they've taken the one that God sent into this world and put him on a cross. And their question is this. We're in big trouble Because we've taken the one that God sent into this world as a gift to us and we took him and put him on a cross. We didn't want him. And the guilt and the working of the Holy Spirit in their own heart. You see this in verse 37. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We've taken the one person, the individual that God sent into this world, he planned for and he prophesied that he would send him into the world. And by our own cruel intentions and our sinful attitudes, we put him on a cross. What are we going to do? You know, if you didn't know the story, you'd probably say, well, you've got to spend the rest of your life paying for this. You, know, you need to start stacking up all sorts of good deeds and all of these things. And that's what you would expect to be the answer if it was normal religion. But Christianity is not a religion. It's about a relationship. Amen. God sent his son into the world for what purpose? For us to have fellowship with him. And so you say, well, what happened by these individuals taking Christ and putting him on the cross? What they did is put him there and made him the ultimate solution. And they didn't even realize it. And so what the answer is, and for us it could be a little bit uh, disconcerting. Verse 38, Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. You say, what does it mean to repent? It's just simply this, that you see everything that you've done before as wrong, as a failure, that you've come short, as Romans talks about, you've come short of the glory of God. You can't be like God. Why? Because you've got sin in your life. You're a failure. And you come up short. And what a person that's repenting is this. It's not that you are doing all sorts of things to show that you're sorrowful. No, you just come to the point where you go, I have nothing. Even my righteousness is as filthy rags, the Old Testament describes it. I have nothing to impress God with. I have no ability or talent. All my sins show that I am an enemy of God 
and I need to turn from that. And it says here that you need to be baptized. Now someone would go, wait a second, that's, that's not quite right. Why did Peter say be baptized? I'll explain it this way, because back in that culture, baptism is not what we picture it as being. But baptism back then, if a Jew got baptized, it was basically turning your back on everything that you ever had in your culture. Because when, when John the Baptist comes and he's calling for people to be baptized before Jesus shows up, he's telling them to repent of their sins and that no Jew ever got baptized. Only Gentiles that wanted to be a part of Jewish culture got baptized. It was basically to show the fact that we're not worthy. We, we don't have anything. And we're really just acknowledging the fact that as Gentiles, we don't have anything. And so we go through the ceremony of baptism. And what the ceremony of baptism that, well, he's simply declaring is this, that you're acknowledging that you have nothing and that Jesus Christ is the only one. I mean, this is what the Great Commission says. Remember that the Great Commission says this, go ye therefore and teach all nations, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. You go, well, what are you baptizing? You know, is baptism the thing? No, baptism was this acknowledgement. I have nothing. I am worth nothing. And Christianity adds to this thing when it comes to baptism that now we're picturing that I'm accepting Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for me. When we have baptism today, it's not saving at all. It's a testimony that I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. That this one rose again to give the hope of eternal life. And so when we baptize someone, uh, it's just merely them publicly acknowledging the fact, I have nothing, I can't save myself. No, what I'm acknowledging is there's one by the name of Jesus who can save me. And he did it by his death, his burial, and he proved that he had power over death by his resurrection. And those are the only things that I have the hope of ever making it to heaven. This is why Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father. No one's getting to heaven but by me. So that's kind of exclusive claim. Well, it is because it's the only way to get to heaven. And so the whole statement of, of Peter here is this, is that he's challenging these individuals. But really what he's challenging with is not so much the sinful side because they know that. They put Jesus on the cross, but they need some sort of hope. And what they see is this, one who was not held by death, but one who rose again, that their sins won't condemn them forever. No, they can have the hope that if the person who will claim them because they put their faith in him, that he rose from the dead, they too will one day. And so as we think about this day of Easter, and there's all sorts of things that go on today, remember, Jesus rose the day to give us hope. We went through the passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm glad Brian went through it this morning. But just the simple, the simple idea that if we don't have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're all without hope. When we die, life ends. That's it. Our body doesn't go anywhere. Uh, we failed. Sin's gotten the ultimate victory. But no, because Christ is risen, as we sang in the song, we now have victory over death. And it's the ultimate proof 
That's why they spent so much time preaching the resurrection, that this is not just merely the death of some individual. No, he rose from the dead. He's different. And because he's different, he can offer something that no one else can give. He can offer a salvation, eternal salvation. I don't know what your status is coming in here today, whether you're thinking that being religious today by showing up in a church service. You know, you're here at church, you know, you, you've done the one thing you need to do to make God happy. No. Every day of the year you're sinning. You're stacking up sins that are offense to God that put His Son on the cross. The only hope for you is what? Do lots of works? No. It's to say, my life is nothing. I have nothing to offer God that can save me. I need someone. Oh, here's one. He's the good news. He died and he rose again. This one Jesus. I put my faith and confidence in him alone. And you know what the Bible describes salvation as? Newness of what? Life. People that have been saved know what that feeling is like where you're experiencing the new creation and new life. There's a change that takes place because now you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have Christ in you, you now have this confidence and this glorious hope that is a part of having life because Jesus rose from the dead. Put your faith in Him today, and if you have faith in Him, rejoice in the fact that sin and death have no hold on you. That when you die, it's just the beginning of enjoying eternal life. Your soul and spirit get to go there first. Your body will eventually join up with you, but you have, well, death has no claim on you because it had no claim on your Savior, Jesus the Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Rejoice in that, and I trust that you have faith in him. Lord, we thank you for Jesus the Savior. Jesus the good news, not only that he died on the cross, but by his resurrection, prove that sin and death have no power. It has no eternal sting. Lord, there may be one here today that has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're depending on, on works or activities or those type of things. No, May they come and realize nothing they do is going to impress you. The only thing that they can do is to claim Jesus Christ. That they look at their own works and say, those are nothing. In fact, they are what put Christ on the cross. I need Christ to save me from my sins. And that they would put their faith in the one who both died, but ultimately rose again. Lord, we thank you as believers that we can go through times where we lose loved ones that know Christ and we can still rejoice though there are tears because we know, we know the power of the resurrection in our own soul. And that death does not have hold. And we can rejoice because we have the blessed hope. And we look one day for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. That we will be with you, body, soul, and spirit for all eternity because of what Christ did on the cross. And we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.